Friends, would you open with me in your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 39. Jeremiah chapter 39, I'm just going to read for us four verses, but we're really going to focus today on just a third of one of the verses that's here in our passage. So I'm going to read for us Jeremiah chapter 39, beginning in verse 11. Hear now God's word. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, gave command concerning Jeremiah through Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, saying, Take him, look after him well, and do him no harm, but deal with him as he tells you. So Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, Nebuchadnezzar, the Reb Saris, Nergalsar Ezer, the Reb Mag, and all the chief officers of the king of Babylon sent and took Jeremiah from the court of the guard. They entrusted him to Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, that he should take him home, so he lived among the people. Now, I read all of that, but I want us to look at verse 14b. Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan. That's going to preach today. So let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, We say this happily, we say this marked with fear, we say this having been through trials with respect to it, but we say with full hearts, we're thankful and hopeful for the gift of family. Would you make that true for us as a spiritual family, the body of Christ, brothers and sisters? Would you make it true of our biological families with all the scars and wounds they entail? Would you surprise us that you are a God who is for us and for our families? And would we see your good work in them today? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we can get to Jeremiah 3914B, I need to make a big fat disclaimer about the sermon today. It is always tricky to come into a church to preach a sermon that touches on the word family, right? Because each of us in this room, we represent very hard family histories or very hard family circumstances. Some of us, we grew up in homes where our parents let us down or hurt us, sometimes in very, very big ways. Some of us are single and we want to be married. Some of us are married and we're not sure that our marriages are going to make it. Some of us long to have kids, but God is not allowing that in this season. Some of us have kids, and those kids aren't following the Lord. And because of all these things, there can be a world, a world of pain behind the simple word family. You say it, and it touches very deep things in all of our hearts. And so for good reason, it feels like a sermon that touches on family can start to feel like the Thanksgiving dinner table, in that there are only so many safe topics you can actually talk about. 
You've got uh, a woman on one side of the room who is focused on her career right now and not on having kids, and she's feeling overwhelmed and undervalued, and the moment you go and try to encourage her in her profession, you have a stay-at-home mom who already feels like she's not doing enough, and she feels marginalized and isolated. And then you've got a single person in the back of the room who says, why are we even talking about marriage in the first place? The moment you start to reach out to one person, another person immediately feels isolated in this room. Now, I'm actually specifically trying to make, not make eye contact with any of you because I've had this conversation with many of you. This year. I probably had this conversation a dozen times this year alone. So I'm not just thinking of you when I say this. I'm thinking of all of us. We all can hear something and feel isolated and marginalized. I saw a title this week in the Babylon Bee, which is a Christian satire news site, and it said this couple has baby just to be admitted into the church social circle. (laughs) Isn't that great? The only reason they had a kid was so that they would get invited to things on the weekend, and it was beautiful. I love how dysfunctional the church is. Um, And yet, all that notwithstanding, the Bible is unapologetically pro-family, right? The Bible is unapologetically pro-family. That is not because the Bible is naive to the brokenness of family. You can hardly think of a circumstance, a sin, a wound with respect to family that is not mentioned somewhere in Scripture. The Bible does not sugarcoat the heartache of family. I wish it did sometimes. I wish it would do more of that. I can't tell you how badly I want to preach on the book of 2 Samuel. We preached through 1 Samuel, and that was one of my favorite books in the world to preach through. 2 Samuel highlights the absolute wicked dysfunction of David's family so badly, I can't even read whole chapters of that in mixed company. The Bible does not sugarcoat brokenness within families, circumstances within families, and yet it is still pro-family. Jesus was a single man. He is pro-family. Jeremiah is a single prophet. He is pro-family. Anna was a childless widow. She is pro-family. Where available, in God's providence... Husbands and wives, moms and dads, sons and daughters, extended family, strive to love God themselves and impart that love of God on their families. All the pain, all the sin, all the circumstances notwithstanding. But because of family brokenness, that is going to look different for every single person in this room how we do family well, how we disciple family well, because of all of our stories and histories and present circumstances, that's going to look different for every single person in this room, and that's okay. That is what God has in store for us and our families. We have hope in that, that he knows our stories, and he knows how he wants to use us with respect to family. Our passage today is the story of three godly generations. 
But it is not just a story for the happy marriages in our church with their 2.5 kids and their Disney cruises, right? It is for those people, praise God, but it is not just for those people. It is for every person here. This passage is for every believer adopted into God's family and striving for the good of every family. If you're sitting in this room and you have a pulse, if you're in Christ or moving towards Christ or curious about Christ, then Jeremiah 39, 14b is for you today as you figure out what is God calling me to do with respect to the family that he has surrounded me with. So with that in mind, that disclaimer in mind, let's dig into the passage and see what's in store for us. In the verses I just read, Jeremiah, the prophet, he finally, finally, finally gets some good news. I mean, we have spent decades, we have spent chapters hearing bad news after bad news for the prophet Jeremiah, but he finally gets good news. Because he's been in prison while Babylon has attacked Jerusalem. And once they've destroyed Jerusalem, he's released from prison, finally. And when the captain of the guard finds him, he releases him and entrusts him to a man named Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan. He's given over to this family. This family is entrusted with the prophet to protect him, feed him, put him up in a house. And this is actually the third time this same biological family has saved the prophet Jeremiah's life. Isn't that crazy? Isn't that wild to hear? When I considered that, I wanted to know a little more about this family. Who is this mystery family that just appears at important places in the book of Jeremiah? How did they come to be and how do they have this kind of relationship with the prophet? And so to do that, I just took out a blank sheet of paper, and I got a concordance, and I began to look up each of these three names to find out and basically trace a family tree. I wanted to know what Shaphan's family tree looks like. So we've got a slide today. This is a special Sunday where I made a slide. You're going to see it. Look at that. I was going to say I did that all by myself, but I actually didn't. Chris actually had to help me make this slide today. Um, But I want you to see this. I want you to visualize. These are all the names I can find related to this family. And what we have here is three generations of the family. What's underlined are the generations that we actually heard in our passage. So you have Shaphan, he's the grandfather, and then we know he at least had three sons. He had Ahikam, who's mentioned here. We have Gamaria, who's mentioned elsewhere. And we have Elisa. And when I first read Elisa, I swear it said Elsa. And I was so excited to tell Ami, I have found frozen in the Bible. It's biblical. But then it was Elisa, so we had to change that. So we know Ahikam at least had one son, Gedaliah, who we are going to hear about today. And then we know at least Gamaria had one son, Micaiah. So you've got six of these names in the Bible, three generations, and I want to tell you a little bit about their family story. You can take that down so it doesn't distract people from my sermon. Um... Shaphan, he's the grandfather, and he was the secretary to King Josiah, and he was on the scene in Josiah's reign at a crucial juncture for the kingdom of Judah. We've mentioned this scene before, it is wild, and it's in 2 Kings chapter 22. 
The king had ordered the priests to begin clearing out the temple. It hadn't been in use for a long, long time, which tells you the state of religion in Judah. They just didn't use the temple. And the priests go, and they do some spring cleaning, and they clear the thing out, and they're in a utility closet, and lo and behold, they find the book of the law. They find the Bible. No one was using it. No one was reading it. The priest didn't even know it was there. And he finds it, and the first person the priest brings this book to is Shaphan, the grandfather in this story. He brings the book of the law to him, and Shaphan takes it, and he reads the entire thing cover to cover, and he is overwhelmed by it, and so he immediately brings it to Josiah, and he reads it cover to cover to the king, and it is miraculous, the response of King Josiah. He tears his clothes, and he asks, what should we then do? If this is true, if this is the God we serve, how do we respond in obedience? What should we do? And so he sends Shaphan and he sends his son Ahikam and he sends a few others to go and consult the prophetess Huldah to find out what they should do. Now I mentioned her name Huldah because that's actually where Adla Flower in the Vista gets its name. It takes Huldah from 2 Kings 22 and does it backwards, and that's where you get Adla flower. So I want you to know that so you can impress your friends. Um, but that's Hulda, and she speaks to Shaphan and Ahikam and the other men that are attended with her, and she tells them what they should do, and they return and tell the king, and it is this dramatic revival in the kingdom of Judah. They tear down idols, and they restore worship of the one true God, and it is a beautiful, beautiful scene of redemption in the story of Judah, which is often marked by sin and sadness. You got to wonder what kind of impact that story had on a man like Shaphan and the at least three sons that were in his household. I would die to know the details of what this family looked like after that, pre being exposed to the Bible and after being exposed to the Bible, pre-nation that was serving God and after a nation that has uh, forsaken its idolatry and is pursuing the one true God, I would die to see what this family looks like. What do they talk about around the dinner table? What do they do with respect to the book of the law? Do they study it together? Do they pray with it together? I would love to know the details, but we don't have any of them. We don't have any details about what their private family looks like. All we know is that by the time we get to Jeremiah, Shaphan has sons and grandsons who are willing to risk their lives to serve the one true God. We don't know the details, but we know the testimony. Chapter 26, his son Ahikam, he saves Jeremiah by hiding him. He protects him and saves him and hides him. Chapter 36, his other son Gamaria and his grandson Micaiah, they save Jeremiah again. Jeremiah is in trouble. They hide him and save him. Here in chapter 39, his grandson Gedaliah saves Jeremiah a third time. He oversees his release and his protection. And then finally in chapter 29, Shaphan's third son, Elisa, not Elsa, delivers uh, Jeremiah's letter to the exiles. Jeremiah 39, 14b, Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, three generations who love God, fear God, put their necks on the line to do God's work, praise God for this family. 
Humanly speaking, if we didn't have Shaphan and his family, we would not have the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah wouldn't have survived. He wouldn't have lasted. Humanly speaking, without this family, we wouldn't be here today studying this prophet. Praise God for these three generations. That's a beautiful picture. And the question immediately comes to us, what do we do with this? How do we respond to this? How do we begin to apply this to our lives? And we're going to do something fun today in the application section. There are two different applications, two very different roads that you can take with respect to this passage. It's kind of like a choose-your-own-adventure. You can take door number one, or you can take door number two. They go in different, you, you can't choose both of them, you've got to pick one or the other, um, but you get to pick what application you want today. Door number one is called guilt and shame. Door number two is called promise and blessing. You got both doors in front of you, you get to pick either one, but if you choose one, you're giving up the other, okay? So let me talk about door number one, because a lot of us are very, very familiar with this door and with this application. It is the door of guilt and shame, and it goes something like this. Gedalia, Ahikam, Shaphan, it is held up as the standard for the Christian family, which also acts as a billy club to beat us over the head with. Come on, y'all. I mean, Shaphan did it. Shaphan produced three godly generations who love and serve Jesus. He probably had awesome family devotions. He probably prayed with his kids every night. Whatever he did, he did it right. And what's your excuse for doing it wrong? If Shaphan can do it, you can do it, so get your act together with respect to parenting. Or to our singles, or those who are married without kids, Shaphan was a working man. He had an extremely demanding job. His career was in politics, he worked in the White House, and yet he still found time to find a godly spouse and produce godly children, and that's how the Bible remembers him. So no matter what you're doing, it is time to buckle down and figure out how to make a godly family. Right? Do you kind of feel the guilt and shame just like welling up inside of you with respect to your parenting and respect to your family choices and with respect to your circumstances? There is this impossible standard in front of you that you are not now meeting. And all of a sudden, what was this beautiful picture in Scripture that we all could have enjoyed and celebrated now becomes this impossible standard that none of us can live up to. It's like the Instagram effect. I see a family in a beautiful scene, and rather than rejoicing and celebrating with them, I I compare, I envy, I resent, I give up, and then I hit like, and I swipe to the next picture, and I do it all over again. That's, that's what we do with these kind of commands in Scripture. We can do it with every command in Scripture, because it begins with the idea that God is in heaven with his arms crossed, and he's frowning at us, and he's expecting to, for us to screw this thing up, like we screw everything up that he gives us to do and obey in. All he's asking us to do, all he is asking every person in this room to do 
is to get involved with eternal souls, impart to them a robust soteriology, and against all statistical odds, lead them on the narrow path that is booby-trapped with the very gates of hell and onward to eternity and salvation. That's all he gives us to do. And yet somehow we fumble it again and again and again. And God frowns on us and he's disappointed with us. That's door number one. That's guilt and shame. Maybe that's where you are today. Maybe you feel led to open that door. I'm not coming with you because I've been there a lot. And that door never ends well for me. I think about all the ways in which I've failed, all the ways I continue to fail, all the ways in which if I would just buckle down now and seize the day now, I can get my family back on track like Shaphan's family, and I've overwhelmed by guilt and shame again and again and again. Praise God, there is door number two. Praise God that over and against guilt and shame, there is the door of promise and blessing. Instead of seeing this verse as an impossible standard that we're never going to live up to, what if God is actually telling us what he's already doing with respect to family? And he's just inviting us to be a part of that. He's letting us know what he's passionate about and what he does and what his spirit is already doing in family and in our church and in the world. And this is actually an invitation to join him in what he already cares about. What if we took seriously passages of scripture in the Psalms and in the prophets and in the Pentateuch that say that God's love is not just measured in individual souls, but in entire family trees? Like that's God's default. He loves us as families and as generations and not just as individuals. There's a saying that's out there that you've probably heard before that has gotten uh, a lot of traction in the church, and it goes something like this. The church is always one generation away from extinction. In other words, you've got our generation who's worshiping the Lord, and you've got our kids who don't yet know the Lord, and if there was a breakdown between our generation sharing the gospel with the next generation, the church is going to be gone forever and extinct, right? And so that kind of cranks the pressure on families to say the church is only ever one generation away from extinction. I do not believe that one single bit. I do not believe that God's eternal plan of salvation that started before the foundations of the world and comes to its culmination at the curtain call of Jesus returning to this present age, I do not believe that God's eternal plan of salvation stands or falls on your family devotions. It doesn't. I wish it did so I could guilt you into doing them more, but it doesn't. 
this is what God is already doing. This is what God plans to do. And when we open up our Bibles as a family, all we're doing is participating, joining, coming alongside, living in the blessing of what God has planned to do from eternity past. We join him in his plan of salvation. And so the question for us becomes not, how do I keep the church from extinction? which is driven by fear. How do I not screw it up with my kids? How do I protect them from the world? All driven by fear, all driven by um, apocalyptic extinction of the church. That's not our question today. Our question is, in what ways is God calling me to join him in what he is already doing? Whether I'm single or married, with kids, empty nester, I'm now knit into a spiritual family, the family of God, the church, and it is my call to participate with God's plan to see generation after generation know and love Jesus, whether they are my blood kin or not. That's the plan of God, and we get to participate in that. We show up and find places for God to use us. That's the application of promise and blessing. So what does that mean for each of us? If we're going to take door number two, we're going to trust God with promise and blessing, what does that actually look like for me as a member of this church? Um, Where are the areas that I can do this? I just want to mention three very briefly. Number one, if you have biological kids or grandkids or nieces and nephews, then it begins in the home. And remember, you're taking this posture. God is already doing something in your home. He's present in your home. You are looking for ways to participate with him in the plans he already has for your children. How can you do that? I find one of the most helpful things in the world in parenting is to find other parents I respect and just ask them how they do this. How do you show up and participate in what God's doing in your house? And I find that Julie and I, we learn so much from other godly parents who are putting these things into practice. What are practical ways that I can show up in my family that God has entrusted me with and begin to show them the love of Christ? That's incredibly helpful. Well, number two, regardless if you have kids or not, the second critical this place that this happens is in our local church body. It happens right here in our family as we're being knit together. Now, right now, we're actually short on volunteers for our kids ages zero to six. That's in part why we have these forms on everybody's seat so we can all think about how we participate in Sunday morning. But We're short on volunteers. We don't have enough to keep our rotation for those kids. And I want to paint a picture for you because I think this is really profound with respect to this sermon. I didn't didn't think of our need for volunteers and then go find this in Jeremiah 39. This was in Jeremiah 39, and we so happened to need volunteers for our kids. Every Sunday morning, 40 to 50 kids, age 0 to 6, show up in this building, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, sponges, ready to soak up any impression of Jesus we might give them. We're the church. 
We're the body of Christ. We're the hands and feet of Christ. These kids are coming and they're incredibly willing week after week. No matter how bad we fumble last week, they're ready here this week to get any impression of all of Jesus that we are willing to give them. 50 kids. I mean, that's an entire church in its own right. Think about this. Our future elders and deacons are down this hall and to the left and probably hitting each other over with blocks right now. They're beating each other up. They're the leaders of this church. We've got little girls in our nursery right now who are the church's next Tabithas and Deborahs and Lydias who are going to set the city of Columbia on fire for Jesus. I bet our next senior pastor just messed his diaper. Seriously. (laughs) Get used to it, kid, because this is really messy work. Think about this. There's a child in the room next door who is going to grow up in this church, and they're going to watch us launch missionaries to some of the least reached places on the globe. And because they see that again and again and again, and God stirs in their heart, they're going to say, you know what? God is calling me to that too. There are going to be kids in the nursery next door. They grow up around our singles who are called to singleness, who have thrown themselves into their work to glorify God and to this church as a family to them. And they're going to watch that testimony and they're going to say, you know what? God is calling me to do that too. All of that is happening next door right now. God is there. He promised to be there. He's there. He's brooding over the children like the spirit over creation, ready to do his work in them. The kids are there. They have to be there. They're being plugged in there every single week. All we have to do is show up to what God's already doing. It sounds like a really little thing to do, but it's actually a really, really big thing. I pray That if you're not doing this now, if you haven't found your niche on Sunday morning yet, you would not leave today without grabbing someone and saying, how can I be a part of what God is already doing? This is what the church family does. It begins in the home. It secondly goes to our church family and the kids that God has brought us. And third, and finally, our deacons are asking the question through ministries like Ezekiel, How do we extend this gospel work for kids, born and unborn, outside the four walls of this church? What's that going to look like for us as a church to be pro-family, not just within the walls of this church, but within our city at large? Gedalia, the son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, may God give this church generation after generation of those who love and serve him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, let us reach out and claim this promise. Let us claim this promise with respect to our own biological family, with our parents and our kids and our grandkids and our nieces and nephews. And 
the interesting family dynamics that you've given us. Let us claim these promises for the kids that you've given this church. Let us be bold in faith to claim these promises for the kids in our neighborhood, Lord, that you would show us ways that we can show up to where you are working and to see this good work that generation after generation others might know and praise you. We plead in Jesus' name, amen.